0: Welcome to the Demystifying Diversity Podcast, where each week we explore topics related to diversity, equity, and inclusion. I'm Dara Lee Lyons, and I'm speaking to you today from the stolen Lenape lands known as Philadelphia.
1: And I'm Zach James, also occupying stolen Lenape lands.
2: And I'm Azaria Keys, and I'm also occupying Lenape land.
0: In this week's Q&A episode of the Demystifying Diversity podcast, we're going to be building off of last week's episode, The Legal System, Justice, Injustice, Law, and Disorder. If you haven't already, make sure to listen to that episode. And with that episode, something that I think bears mentioning is that we weren't planning on doing an episode specific to the legal system, but it turned out that so many of the people that we interviewed for this season were speaking about the law. We interviewed quite a lot of lawyers. Leora Eisenstadt, who's the director of Sedwick, who is co-producing this podcast, is herself an attorney, and just throughout the course of all of the episodes, our interviews included so many important insights about law and the legal system that we decided to add this episode partway through the season production.
2: So true. And I know we didn't talk about any other industries in depth, but the legal system impacts so many other workplace issues, as well as impacting which type of work people can do based on their various intersecting identities. So Darylise, I would love for you to talk about how intersectionality and the law play off of one another.
0: I think hopefully people heard a bunch of this threaded through the main episode, but intersectionality is something that, Comes up again and again in terms of who has access to the law. So, in terms of civil law issues, different people have different access to lawyers, legal representation, quality legal representation on the basis of things like their socioeconomic identity. We all know the statistics around incarceration rates being incredibly high amongst black and brown folks in this country and disproportionately high. And so, I think. I think one of the ways that intersectionality shows up in the legal system is that depending on who you are, your interactions with the law are going to be very different. Your access to the law is going to be very different. The various opportunities, the various levels of exposure based on people's previous interactions with the law, they may or may not have access to certain jobs or certain industries. So I think the legal system really permeates everything. And then depending on who a person is, their access to that is going to to change, and their relationship to that is really going to be very different based on their intersecting identities.
1: Darius, can you provide a little context on how reporting about this episode has made you view the legal system as a whole?
0: I will say that I have mixed feelings about the legal system system. I think like anything else, it depends on how a system is implemented. So I've had very positive interactions with attorneys in my lifetime. And at the same time, I've also have a lot of awareness about the unfairness of incarceration in the United States, the ways in which black and brown people are treated, the ways in which individuals with disabilities are treated. So I would say my relationship with the legal system is somewhat complex. Complicated. But one of the things that I hope this episode really stressed is the issue of precedence, which I think is important. And then also looking at who judges are <laughs> is really important because that representation, I think, really, really matters in terms of how the law is applied and for whom it works well and for whom it, it seems to be unfairly and unfortunately prejudicial. But yeah, what about both
2: of you? I would probably echo most of that. It's really interesting because I would say typically I lean toward the side of being skeptical about our legal system. I think that there it's a bit archaic in some of its approaches and it's time that we reevaluate a lot of that. And it hasn't been until for instance like my partner is an attorney and I Have gotten to see through him that there are attorneys out there, there are people practicing law who understand the power that they have in making the decisions that they make. And someone like my partner who is very passionate about being equitable in how he practices law is so important. And so that's given me some hope that there are people out there who do care about being equitable in decisions Addressing the inequities that are sometimes perpetuated by our legal system are often perpetuated by our legal system so I do have hope and it's been interesting just working under Leora as an attorney and hearing some of her perspective, but I would say i still probably predominantly lean towards feeling like we need to make several improvements in our specifically criminal justice system especially because i'm someone whose father was incarcerated for several years of my life and i've gotten to see that yes decisions and agency of that individual play a large factor into it but there were so many ways in which He wasn't dealt the fairest hand, probably, because of maybe his socioeconomic status, some race components, of course. And so I'm still pretty skeptical. (laughs) What about
1: you, Zach? I know you probably know Darylise Azaria. This is news to you. But I actually produce another podcast whose tagline is exposing the trauma caused by the criminal injustice system. To say it mildly, I am also not a fan. And I I know so much work has to be done to rectify it. You made a good point, Darylise, that that representation element, if there's not a change from the mindset of the folks who are in charge of making these decisions, it's hard to expect a lot of change in the result of the system. So that was one of my big takeaways, which I know we'll get into later, but really making sure folks are voting for the right people and getting the right folks in place to help make a change. And, and also understanding that change is an instant. It's going to take time. But I think that's one of the biggest things that we need to do is, is get the right people in place that can make better decisions for the entire population, keeping that diversity element forefront of their mind. Because again, it, it's very discouraging how the system treats some folks versus others. And that's one of the things I definitely hope we can change in the future. In case anyone wants to check it out, I'll make sure to put a link to Purely Speculation, the other podcast I produce in the show notes. But a follow up for you, Darylis, because the law is based on precedents and because we know it can be implemented and enforced in inequitable ways. How can we mitigate for the human biases that naturally become reinforced by the legal system?
0: I think it goes back to what we were talking about a little bit with representation and how if folks are – in decision-making positions, specifically judges and juries that have more equitable points of view. I think that then the law just naturally becomes a little more fairly employed. However, I will say that there's a lot of data out there that talks about how juries unfairly look at people on the basis of things like weight and gender and race. And so I don't know that we can really use the current system to completely dismantle the biases that exist. I think that what needs to happen, and I'm not an attorney, so I don't even know if this would be viable, but I do think that the system needs to be retooled and restructured in order to genuinely make it safer and healthier and more equitable. I mean, Azaria mentioned the criminal justice system. And one of the things that I think is atrocious about that is that the workload on public defenders, the fact that often public defenders will Meet with their clients for something like 15 minutes or 10 minutes before arguing a case. There's been stories about lawyers who pull out the wrong file when they go to advocate for a person. I think our criminal justice system is set up so that it encourages recidivism. So I think there's just a ton that happens that is so far reaching that I don't know that we can completely dismantle or change it with easy solutions or easy fixes. I think that, as you mentioned, Zach, it is something that's going to take time. And I think we have to be willing to turn old systems on their heads a little bit, which because the law is grounded in precedence, I think that would be very hard, if not impossible, to completely do. What are your thoughts about that? Because I don't think I have all the answers for sure.
1: One thing that I've actually learned as a result of that podcast was something that seems to be helping in the process, and that's this practice of participatory defense. Hubs all around the country have been doing this for the last handful of years. It started out on the West Coast, but it's really just a collection of folks who are taking the time to educate the families of folks who are being prosecuted, so they understand that process of working with a public defender what they can do to help support their family member when they're going through pretrial incarceration, which is also fairly racist and biased, and help them through that process so that they can aid their loved one and and be aware if there are things that are happening that are biased against their particular family member. Because when you're in a courtroom setting or you hear that, you, you don't really pick up on it. You don't really know legalese. You don't understand what's going on around you. So you need that added bit of education and help. And this participatory defense practice really helps folks do that. So I think coming up with strategies like that, court watching is another one. There's volunteers who will sit on random court cases just to be an ear, just to be a presence so that lawyers and judges know that someone is paying attention. Little things like that go a long way in in helping check biases that are coming about in that legal system.
2: I also think that thinking about that changing such a system is going to take time. Chairwoman Burroughs talked about that. But I think that when I can stop and think about having attorneys that represent more than just one demographic, I don't have the exact statistics in front of me, but we know that racially speaking that it is a predominantly white industry, but more and more you're starting to see black women and men and Latinx individuals becoming attorneys. I think that representation is so important because at the end of the day, attorneys are still humans that have their own biases, but when we can add variety of diversity of thought into that industry and into that field. It brings me hope to see that some of these attorneys are going to see themselves in the people that they are prosecuting. And I hope that one day that looks like as a prosecutor, using your power responsibly and looking at the person that you're prosecuting and saying, hey, yeah, you committed a crime and you do need to serve time, but do you need to serve the entire life sentence for this Charge that really doesn't require that. And if they can see themselves in, or their siblings or their parents in the people sitting there being prosecuted, then I think hopefully those decisions become more equitable, right? So representation matters because even though you still have a job to do as an attorney, I would hope that you could pull on some of your own personal experiences and look at the people in which are so frequently. Coming in and being prosecuted disproportionately, and I'm referring to black and brown folks. And I I hope that representation in attorneys can change some of those outcomes because that is, in my mind, a more feasible solution to changing the system is diversifying those who run the system.
0: Yeah, and I just want to add on that black and brown folks are really disproportionately incarcerated, as are individuals with intellectual disabilities, folks with mental illness, folks with addiction issues. And a lot that we prosecute in the United States is really the criminalization of whether it be a person's identity or a person's mental faculties, the the criminalization of those things that really require different kinds of support are things that I just think are excruciatingly painful. And one of the stories that really stood out to me in last week's episode was the story that Arthur Garrison told about the woman who was a sex worker who was raped and how the prosecutor actually went to bat for her and how many times prosecutors don't go to bat for victims who are in industries that are perhaps high risk or victims whose stories or situations might lead juries to be unsympathetic because of the biases within juries. And so that was something that I really thought about and that I took away just a lot of solace, but also a lot of sadness from that story because I know how it turned out for that one particular survivor, but I think it probably turns out very differently for 80% of the people that have those sorts of things happen to them. But I'm curious, Zach and Azaria, what were some of your more impactful stories or takeaways from this episode? One that stuck out
1: to me was the way that some employers can shape the lives of their employees. Specifically, a story was told about working at, at Hobby Lobby and how healthcare provided by them an employee who might want to get some sort of contraception actually can't, based on the beliefs of the folks that run Hobby Lobby. And I was surprised. I mean, there's a Hobby Lobby less than a mile away from my house, and I never really looked at it like that. Like where you work might actually dictate what types of health care can be provided by that employer. And something that you would think is commonplace might not be available based on their beliefs. So that kind of stood out to me as a shocking that I don't think most people think to look that deep when they're looking for a job. And you could now be in a scenario where you need that contraceptive and you can't get it because you work in a place that you might love working at. You might really enjoy everything about that job, but didn't look for that when you actually took that that position. And I'm sure there's plenty of more companies that that would fall into that same category. So that was shocking and surprising to to hear.
2: Yeah, Zach, when I was thinking about that, I was like, I know plenty of Christians who believe in using contraceptives. So (laughs) I I just, yeah, I actually worked in undergrad. I worked at a grocery store that shared a parking lot with a Hobby Lobby when that decision became public. And it was like night and day. I never could find parking spots prior to that. And then after that, their side of the lot was just empty. So a lot of people felt that. I would say a takeaway for me from this episode came from Arthur's discussion around the 13th Amendment. And I already knew this. I took a class in African-American studies during undergrad, and we we touched on this a lot. But it was just that reminder that actually slavery is not abolished. Like slavery is still legal because it's in the 13th Amendment. And I think Arthur said something along the lines of when Jim Crow came around and that was after it was said that slavery is illegal, it's abolished, whatever. Jim Crow was a way to criminalizing Black people was a way to continue to allow slavery legally because that is how the 13th Amendment worded it. And to think about that, again, my dad served a lot of time in prison and jail. And one of the jobs that he often had that he enjoyed because it was a way for him to get out was fighting fires. I think about that and I'm like, wow, it doesn't matter what crime you committed, you are giving free work, basically. And in some cases, it's work that literally risks your life. And if my dad were to die on the job of fighting fires and wherever he was fighting fires, would that matter? Not really, because it's just a prisoner doing, I guess, his job. But it just, it really resonated with me because it reminds me that as long as something like the 13th Amendment exists as it does today with the language it uses that allows slavery, as long as it's the result of criminalization, then no wonder why the powers that be abuse their power and criminalize at a disproportionate rate black and brown individuals, people with intellectual disabilities, physical disabilities, LGBTQIA plus individuals. No wonder why, right? Because it is still legally allowed. And so until we can fix that language, and I'm like, wait, so are we actually going to address this at any point legally and change this? And I don't see that happening anytime soon. So yeah, that just was that reminder for me. It's like, wow, yeah, actually, we haven't advanced. And I also then feel like We can't really be that shocked when it continues to happen because there are still people in this society that I think very much wish that we could go back to a time where that slavery existed. But since we can't, it's enough for them to be able to basically treat prisoners as slaves.
0: Well, that really was just, it's something that I know, but hearing it, every time i hear it or every time i reflect on it it's just painful all over mm-hmm. again and and i think about how to arthur's point about what we see the criminal justice system as being and the purpose of it like really determines and reflects People's experiences. And I know when he was talking about the guardian model versus the warrior model and this idea of rehabilitation versus, I guess, punishment, right? And like exclusion. I think until people start seeing the role of prisons differently or the role of the criminal justice system differently. I don't know that there's incentive to change that language, because I think that in the same way that the dehumanization of black and brown folks led to slavery being on the books for a very, very long time, even after people realized that there was something wrong with it. I think the dehumanization of people who get caught, right, who get caught, who look a certain way and get penalized for acting outside of the bounds of what is societally sanctioned, I think that the dehumanization of those people is what allows something like the 13th Amendment to continue and is what allows for just the horrible treatment of people who are incarcerated, including, and we didn't get into this at all in the episode, but I think about trans folks who are put into prisons Mm. with individuals who do not share their gender identity and are really, their lives are endangered as a result of that. And so there's a lot about our prison systems that are really, really broken. These past few years have really illuminated how important it is to care for our health. The place where I go for all my health and wellness supplements is Vita Supreme. Vita Supreme uses all organic ingredients and has a wide range of supplement options that can help with immune support, heart health, energy, mental health, pain relief, sleep, anti aging, digestion, diabetes, and more. Their products have helped me reduce joint pain and increase vibrancy. And if you read their online testimonials, you'll find glowing endorsements from their customers who, at every age and stage of life are feeling better than ever. Vita Supreme believes that health radiates from the inside out, and I can tell you from personal experience that their supplements have made a positive difference in my life. To receive 10% off your first order, go to vitasupreme.com/pages/diversity. Your discount will be applied at checkout. There's no code required. Also, as a special offer with your first order, you can receive a free 15-minute coaching session with one of their wellness experts to find out more about what you can do to improve your health and your habits. Just send your name and preferred contact information to support at vitasupreme.com. Once again, to get 10% off your first order, go to vitasupreme.com slash pages slash diversity. And to receive your free coaching session, email support at vitasupreme.com and tell them the Demystifying Diversity podcast sent you. Through innovative and dynamic educational initiatives, Temple University's Fox School of Business provides students with real-world local and global business opportunities. At the Fox School of Business, you can choose from a wide range of undergraduate, graduate certificate, and continuing educational programs. Whatever your academic and professional path, you'll learn practical strategies for workplace success at a university that is committed to encouraging and respecting diversity in all forms and perspectives. The Fox School of Business, which includes the Center for Ethics, Diversity, and Workplace Culture, has built an inclusive, welcoming environment where everyone is emboldened to reach their full potential. So if you want to be in a learning environment that will empower you to cultivate your capacity for empathy and profitability, go to fox.temple.edu DDP for more on how you can learn from world-class DEI-focused faculty and become an inclusive leader in the workplace. So if you want to be in a learning environment that will empower you to cultivate your capacity for empathy and profitability, go to fox.temple.edu DDP for more on how you can learn from world-class DEI-focused faculty and become an inclusive leader in the workforce, with options for students and professionals at every stage of life, including undergraduate, graduate certificate, and continuing educational programs, the Fox School of Business has something just right for you. So make sure to check out fox.temple.edu ddp to learn more. One statistic that I found that I thought bears speaking about is that nationally, Black Americans are incarcerated at nearly five times the rate of white Americans. And in some states, that disparity is far greater. So I think that we've been alluding to that. But That's really important thing to know. And then a 2016 study of policing in Oakland, California, found that Black residents accounted for 60% of stops of any type. So whether it was like vehicle stops, pedestrian stops, bicycle stops by the police, despite only constituting about 28% of the city's population, those things are real and they're backed by data. And I think we need to address that.
2: Darylise, I'm actually in grad school right now. One of the classes that I'm taking is or finishing up is the urban environment. And we read a book called Punished Policing the Lives of Black and Latino Boys by Victor Rios. And it actually talks about the fact that Oakland, California set the standard for how the rest of the nation went about policing and making the criminal justice decisions and policies that they made. It was all based on how Oakland had done a specific move. It's all in the book, but it's really interesting because it goes deep into Oakland being a a huge center of why the nation sees criminal justice the way it does today.
1: You talk about mitigating some of those things and I have two answers. One hire the Demystifying Diversity team to come do some sort of (laughs) bias training, which actually I say that jokingly, but I've seen the impact. I've seen people's opinions change. So having that sort of training on a recurring basis, I think every police force should have that. Your community servants, those who are voted in the office, they should have that on a recurring basis. And then I think the other element is having these sorts of conversations at an early age, I don't, I don't have a recommendation for what age that is. I know things like removing critical race theory from teaching isn't going to make racism better. I think it has the opposite effect. So in this, I think an education at a certain age and point would be beneficial to help lessen these biases as these folks age and, and get older.
0: Yeah, and Azaria, we'll put a link to the book that you referenced in the show notes because I think people should definitely check that out and we'll also put it on our resource page. And Zach, to your point, I think education is critical. I also think one of the things that I appreciate about the work that we do, and there are many other people who are out there doing that work, but is it's not just education and information, it's really experiential what we try to do. And I think that people, I keep coming back to that AC Folks quote about it's hard to hate up close, but I I really do believe that. And I think that people's biases, their prejudices, their dehumanization, their discrimination proliferates because they don't have genuine encounters with people who don't look like them, who don't think like them. And then if we look at the legal system, historically, it's comprised of an inordinate percentage of white educated men. And that's who judges are. And I don't know that it's always from a place of malice. Like I know we did an episode last season on black and brown police officers and and their experiences, or maybe it was two seasons ago, but we'll find that and we'll put a link to that in the show notes. And Senator Sharif Street was talking in that episode about how even well-meaning police officers and judges can think that they're doing the right thing by unfairly treating black and brown youth because they're operating from a paradigm of, oh, we've got to intervene now to keep this from getting worse. Whereas with white youth, there's the the sense of, oh, kids will be kids. And I just think those sometimes subtle, sometimes overt biases can completely change the trajectory of people's lives and can completely change their interactions with the legal system from things that could be positive and uplifting to like really eviscerating and having a lifelong negative impact.
2: Yeah. And I would just like to add, I know we're going to jump into our Q&A experts interview shortly, but it's applicable to what we're we're talking about right now. I think policy mattered. I know policy change matters. And Tomar Peterson Brown had said in her interview that something is intended where a law is not specifically written to avoid those outcomes. And so as long as there are not laws to protect against the inequities in our criminal justice system, then in my mind and Tamar put it perfectly, it is intended. And so until we change the policies that are causing disproportionate incarceration of black and brown individuals, causing so much inequity around the legal system for so many different people who identify with different demographics, then it's intended. Because again, we have laws to protect us against so many things, and that's very intentional. So one can only come to the conclusion that if we don't have a law to protect us against legal system inequities than that is intended. So policy change matters and that's like the real meat of this. I think some of it's anecdotal about what we can do, but we know that policy change matters and I think that has to be a part of this discussion around change.
0: And policies are different on a state level than mm-hmm. a federal level. And so mm-hmm. people's experiences you can be arrested for the same thing in California versus Texas and your experience is going to be very different.
1: So Darylise, was there anything that didn't make it into this episode that you wanted to include?
0: I don't think there's any way to do justice to this topic because it's so broad. And I think the fact that we're trying to put a lot in to one episode, pack a lot in. I would have wanted to, to Azaria's point, go a little deeper into the weeds on policy and maybe even separate this out into civil law versus criminal law. Hopefully this will just be an introduction for people or a continuation for people or one stop on the train of information and education and activism. So I don't think we were able to get everything in that I would have liked to get in, but I hope we gave enough of an overview interview that it inspired people to do a little more deep digging on their own. And certainly, hopefully, they'll check out the show notes and read the book as area referenced and listen to some of the episodes of the podcast, act that you work on. But yeah, what about the two of you? What are some things that you would have wanted to hear that weren't in this episode?
2: I think this was, it was a hefty episode because we were pulling from all the different legal themes that came up from the different discussions in each episode. And I think to have tied it back to the workplace a bit more, I would have loved to talk about the criminal justice system's impact for people who are trying to reenter society. And if we have all of these injustices going on in the quote unquote justice system, and we know that people can be wrongfully convicted, how does it change that, that person's relationship going back into the workforce when you have a record now or you've had these things happen to you. And I think that it would have been really valuable to hear about people re-entering into society. And I'm specifically thinking about I mean, this is an exceptional story. But this conversation has been on my mind lately, because Sedwick co sponsored an event not too long ago with Larry Miller, who is the head of the Jordan brand with Nike. And he has a book called jump. And it is talking about his experience from coming through his own challenges in the criminal justice system to being able to receive educational opportunities that eventually positioned him to attend temple and then become this major executive in the nike fashion business right you have to read the book to hear how amazing his story is but part of our event was talking about how today that would never happen because we don't have enough programs in place for someone to be able to be invested in in the way in which Larry Miller was and for him to be able to turn his life around the way that he was able to. You just wouldn't see that happen today because the opportunities to help people get back on their feet and better their lives after They've either been wrongfully or maybe convicted for good reason. I think those are important things to talk about reentering the workforce. So that's kind of something that I was thinking about listening to this episode, because I know it went down paths that maybe aren't directly tied to the workplace. But I think there is a way to bring it all back to the workplace especially when you talk about people having to get back out there and figure out how they're going to try to better their lives and how our society makes it hard for people to do that and then you see recidivism because if I don't have employment options based on x y and z and how I'm discriminating against based on x y and z then what am I supposed to do to survive that's just something that's always interesting to me but I think it would be a great conversation to to continue
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think we should put some resources to articles that folks can read about that, maybe a book or two. So we will absolutely... Delve more deeply. I remember a few years ago when my sister was graduating from Wesleyan, the coronation speaker was someone who'd been incarcerated, who was then released and started a program about to go into prison systems and educate people to prepare them for when they were released. And then also, Damon West spoke about that a little bit in his interview. And so, we will definitely put some resources into the show notes because I think that's very important for people to be thinking about figure out what, if anything, they can do to get involved in supporting that type of re-entry work. So yeah, thanks so much for pointing that out.
1: Hey, listeners, Zach here. Darylise and I are so grateful you've tuned in to season three of the Demystifying Diversity podcast. You probably know by now that we've partnered with Temple University's Fox School of Business to bring you this special season dedicated to DEI in the workplace. With that in mind, we ask that you send us your work-related DEI questions by calling 844-888-8148. Just leave a message with your question or send us a note through our website, www.DemystifyingDiversityPodcast.com. As always, we'll be joined by some amazing guest experts and thought leaders who can also weigh in on whatever questions you have. Again, the number is 844-888-8148 or message us through our website, DemystifyingDiversityPodcast.com. Who knows, your voice or your question may just make it into one of our Q&A episodes. Happy listening.
0: I think now would be a great time to move into our expert interview section of the Q&A episode. As Azaria mentioned, in this interview I had the opportunity to speak with Tamar Pearson Brown. Tamar is the Associate Dean for Equity and Inclusive Excellence and a Clinical Associate Professor of Law at the University of Pittsburgh School of Law. She is the director of the Health Law Clinic, a medical legal partnership with UPMC Children's Hospital of Pittsburgh. And I found Tamar to be pragmatic, empathetic and and inspirational. So we'll play the clip of that interview with myself and Tamar and then we'll come back and discuss it.
3: We demystify diversity, making work safe for you and me. Shoulder to shoulder, we embark, fight the light to send the dark. Let's embrace one another. Single colleagues, working mothers, people of all
0: points of view, can we see each other? So, Tamar, I know you're the Associate Dean for Equity and Inclusive Excellence at the University of Pittsburgh School of Law, as well as the Clinical Associate Professor and Director of the Health Law Clinic. And that's such rich and intersectional work. And I just want to ask, why do you do
3: this work and how has it changed you? I think it's important to our democracy that the U.S. legal system is populated with leaders who are as diverse as those governed by the laws of this country, and achieving that goal starts with the diversity of our law schools. To that end, I believe that law schools should be accessible to a broad range of aspiring leaders, and having DEI initiatives at the forefront is a strategic way of realizing that goal. DEI work in the context of legal education really aims to support diversity in law schools by maintaining a culture of inclusion and by ensuring that the school's program operates in equity. How it has changed me, I think, is that the work has made me more self-reflective. It's made me a better critical thinker. And I hope simply to engage others to be self-reflective, critical thinkers. I think that those practices go a long way to centralizing the work of instituting equity and and inclusion. Something that I remember from our interview
0: is how you all have really worked to come up with pillars of inclusion so that it's not just information, but it's also practical and application-based for folks.
3: Yeah, yeah. We have our our habits of inclusion, which we've been trying to disseminate within the law school experience for all of our incoming students. So it's like, while you're learning study habits and while you're building lawyering competencies, you can also pick up a habit that's going to help you contribute to the culture of inclusion in our law school. And so culture change is slow, but so far it's been well-received. And so we're continuing to find ways to integrate those habits into the culture of our law school. One thing that really sticks out to me is how I think the law in particular
0: is structured in a way that slowness has always been seen as beneficial. And what I mean by that is that everything needs to be grounded in precedent. And I talk a lot about this in the episode, but DEI is a space where I think expansion and growth and possibility is really useful and valuable. And so it's interesting to balance those things about a legal system that was largely created by white men and how to make that a more expansive and inclusive space for individuals of all identities and experiences to step into leadership roles and really create change.
3: I think it's important for students of diverse backgrounds to see themselves in the lawyering profession, right? We have a lot of first-generation students who they're the only person in their family who's gone to law school, so they're creating and fomenting their professional identity as they go through the law school experience. And so I think pairing DEI initiatives with work on professional identity development for all law students is really important. Students can begin to reflect on their own sense of themselves as a person with a racial identity or with several political identity markers as they think about what it is to take on the mantle of being an attorney in our society
0: you mentioned taking on the mantle of being an attorney in our society and of people bringing their identities forward into a professional context. And one thing that I thought was so curious and so special about the work that you do is this blending of the recognition that the law intersects with health issues and also intersects with DEI. And I know you've done some work on looking at racism specifically as a public health issue. And I'm just curious, can you speak a little bit about the intersection of law and health and DEI? I know we could be here for hours talking about that, but just so people get a little bit of a sense of how the things that you're doing relate to each other.
3: So summer of 2020, I, like everyone else, was watching the political events unfold around really having the breadth of our institutional racism as manifest in violence against Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Arbery and and George Floyd. And I was thinking about how do we respond, right? Like, how does law respond to this moment? And so there was so much emphasis on the context of criminal justice. But what about the health impacts of racism? And so it was really fascinating to see across the country over 200 locales Came forward and issued declarations that racism was, in fact, a public health crisis. Now, the public health community had been saying this for years, right? There's those of us who have been doing health justice work have been saying this for years, but it was so interesting to see a message that had largely circulated in academic spheres into the public domain right this was on the 11 o'clock news right that that different localities were coming together and, and announcing that racism was a public health crisis and so i wanted to learn more about this trend but i also wanted to be a little bit critical about what advancement or what positive outcome would communities of color experience from having their state and local government declare racism to be a public issue and what i found was that declarations are really just performative. They're not law. But there were several jurisdictions that had the authority and had the capability of passing laws and actually chose to release declarations instead. So I write about, I believe it's the Oregon State Legislature, they simultaneously had two proposals. One would be to advance a bill that would declare racism as a public health statement, and then one to issue a declaration. Now, if they had passed the bill, right, there would have been some accountability. It would have been on the books. There would have been programs that would have to be followed based on the letter of that law to affect the purpose of that statute. But if you issue a declaration, it's really one and done. And so in that instance, they decided to go forward with the declaration. The proposed bill never even made it out of committee, right? And so there were examples like this across the country. And so I examined this from a critical race theory perspective to say, we really have to think about this phenomenon that Professor Derek Bell coined as interest convergence. How does that phenomenon of power really only conceding when there's interests that are aligned Serve to maybe on the surface advance social justice, but really in a systematic way undermine social justice. Because now we've all had this collective feel good moment where across the country we all said, "Okay, racism is a public health issue," but then what? And so there are other scholars who are, are doing similar research that are really tracking well what were the actual interventions that came from this movement. So more research needs to be done to see whether having made these statements will have a lasting impact on systemic racism as it manifests in a variety of different contexts across the country. But I I was really interested in exploring and bringing to the forefront the fact that just because there was this moment of political synergy doesn't necessarily mean that the actual ends of justice have been realized.
0: I think that's really so essential because in some ways, I don't mean to overuse a term, but in some ways, my perception is that it can function as gaslighting, right? To tell people like, yes, yes, clearly there is something here. There's an issue. Something needs to be done. We will not stand for it. But then to put no actual legal protections in place to have no, like, so it feels both affirming and invalidating at the same time.
3: And there's a contrast between jurisdictions that really did take it seriously. You can look at the example of Boston, Massachusetts, as one instance of a locality that really did strive to put teeth and accountability behind their statements as compared to some locales which simply made a declaration and kept it moving, or other locales that passed declarations in one legislative term. But as soon as there was a new executive official, the executive official comes through and rescinds the statement. So there was a range of responses across the country, but I focused particularly on those who had The authority that had the power of the state to actually make change and chose to use a more performative mechanism for addressing the problem and why that might have been the case and what that signals for activists who are in this for the long term, that what's key and what we need to focus on in counting something as a public policy success is whether there is a transfer of resources to marginalized community and whether there's an empowerment of members of marginalized communities to address the problems that they see around them. I'm so glad that you
0: gave that answer and really pointed to the distinction that happens in certain jurisdictions and in certain municipalities because I feel like that's a really great lead-in to our first listener question which is rooted in differences based on area and how those impact individuals of a certain identity. Hi. This episode speaks about how
1: legal decisions have far-reaching consequences such as the 1994 crime bill or the recent overturn
0: of Roe v. Wade. How do impacted communities recover? when laws like these have unintended consequences.
3: This question about legal decisions having far-reaching consequences is really interesting because it raises an unspoken follow-up question, which is what are the intended versus the unintended consequences of a particular law? When I'm working with my students, I remind them that the law doesn't exist independent of the narratives or stories that we tell about why a rule is necessary or what a policy will accomplish. When considering a statute or a judicial decision, the first thing each student of the law must do is distinguish between the story being told and what the law actually facilitates or hinders. The second step gets to the question that your caller asks, which is if there's misalignment between the narrative surrounding a law and the outcomes that the law produces, was that misalignment intentional or unintentional? Let's take the for instance of, of crime legislation, right? So maybe the story is this law will keep you safe, right? We're gonna pass this piece of legislation to ensure safety, but the observable outcome, what the law actually facilitates is the building of more prisons and correctional facilities. So what's the alignment between story and outcome? Well, if living in a world with more prisons makes you feel safe, then you're probably gonna find alignment between those two and conclude then that the increased rate of incarceration was an intended consequence, right? We build more jails, we incarcerate more people. That was all an intended derivative consequence of the legislation. But then you step back and take a look at the demographics of who is being incarcerated. So according to the Sentencing Project, black Americans are incarcerated in state prisons at nearly five times the rate of white Americans. Nationally, one in 81 black adults in the United States is serving time in state prison. Latinx individuals are incarcerated in state prisons at a rate that is 1.3 times the incarceration rate of white Americans. Was that an intended consequence? Well, there's really compelling arguments. Just read, for example, The New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander, that while incarcerating Black Americans was not a stated goal of the Violent Crime Control and Law Enforcement Act of 1994, also known as the 1994 Crime Bill, the consequences that it wrought on Black families and Black communities is consistent with our nation's history of institutionalized, law-based, racialized social control. Communities of color have always endured, resisted, and worked to recover from laws and policies which ultimately criminalize Black and brown bodies, right? These far-reaching policy consequences which maintain the status quo of white supremacy, are arguably intended consequences. So the challenge isn't, well, how do we recover from unintended consequences? I think the challenge is in recognizing that these derivative outcomes, which result in oppression or subjugation or marginalization, is intended where a law is not explicitly written to avoid that result.
0: Thank you so much for that response and for the question. And I think you made such important points. And I'm curious too, because yes, there's the layer of intent and you pointed out stories, right? And and I think that there are multiple stories being told in various situations, but the stories that are connected to the power and the privilege of decision-making and legalities and consequences and influence have historically been stories told by oppressors. And so to me, what are the stories being told, but then also what are the power dynamics that are leading to the institutionalization of policies surrounding certain narratives? And then also you talked about the crime bill. I mean, there have been so many instances of the stories being told and the policies and legislation surrounding those stories Having these ramifications where even years later, the storytellers themselves will look back and realize, oops, my bad. But there have been decades of oppression and pain and subjugation that those who are marginalized can't recover from because of the amortization of racism or discrimination. So it's very complicated.
3: Yeah. And I just think that some of it is strategic in the sense that politicians are savvy enough to know that if you're explicit about the racist intent of a particular policy, you're not going to be able to curry the public sentiment and the will needed to advance that agenda. But if you can find other frames like crime and safety, then you're able to affect an agenda that has a racist result. So I think that it's really important to develop that critical sensibility to identify what Professor Ian Haney-Lopez would call like those dog whistles when they happen so that you can understand that while the dominant narrative might be X, the actual policy effect, the actual systemic impact is going to be Y and make your your decisions accordingly. And something that I think we always work
0: to do at the Demystifying Diversity Podcast is really highlight how issues that seemingly affect one particular group have wide-ranging implications and consequences. And so I know the listener mentioned the Dobbs decision, and I know we were talking about the systemic impact of legislation that impacts individuals of a certain racial demographic. But I'm curious, Tamar, could you speak about how something like the Dobbs decision impacts not just women, but individuals of all gender identities and expressions and really has far-reaching
3: ramifications. I'm so glad that you set it up that way because it's really important for everyone to understand that Dobbs does not just affect women. It really affects anyone who can become pregnant and it affects anyone in a relationship, in a primary familial relationship with someone who can become pregnant. So in this case, we have a decision that has impacted almost all of us. And so we're all gonna have to figure out, well, how do we recover from this change in what we've understood about the scope of our rights. Where you live now dictates the range of family planning options that are available to you. This has not been reality for a generation, right? What type of health care you receive is dictated by where you live. And so I continue to reflect upon whether this was an example of an intended consequence or an unintended consequence, because there's A variety of narratives around why people are either in favor of restricting abortion or in favor of ensuring that full bodily autonomy and full access to the range of reproductive health care is available as a constitutional right. In terms of recovery, right, because the caller also asks, how do communities recover I think that our recovery must involve continued political engagement. It can be really easy to want to retreat from our responsibility as participants in a democracy to engage with policy decisions that are discouraging. I think that part of the efficacy of oppressive uses of power or oppressive policies is to discourage and to make people feel as though their continued political participation is futile. But we resist by engaging undeterred. Even if that means tapping out for a moment, doing what you need to do, self-care is important. But when you return to that engagement as often as you can, that's what's key. Staying engaged is what's going to help us to recover.
0: I'm so glad that you mentioned that continued engagement and self-care, because I think one thing that I have found is that I can go hard and then burn out. And it's like, okay, better perhaps to show up consistently over time and to utilize my efforts in a way that is both sustainable for me and likely to have a long-term impact. And it can be discouraging and it can be incredibly painful. But I also think that because these decisions have such widespread ramifications, I think tapping out in some ways is part of our responsibility as humans. It's our responsibility to each other to remain engaged, even if you are not a person who may believe that you might be touched by a certain issue. I think we all have a vested interest in remaining engaged.
3: Yeah. It's that garment of mutuality that we're all cloaked in as of humanity, right? What affects it's the what's the Martin Luther King quote, what affects one directly affects all indirectly. I think that's
0: a great lead in to our next question from Courtney. So maybe we could move to that and chat about that for a moment.
3: Hello. This is Courtney and I have a question for you. What are some of the non-obvious ways that Supreme Court decisions impact inclusivity within our country? I look forward to your answer. Thank you. Bye-bye. Courtney, thank you so much for this really great question. I love that you're thinking about the impacts of Supreme Court decisions on inclusivity, which I don't think a lot of people think that way. And I love that the question seeks non-obvious ways, right? Because there's a lot of obvious ways We all know Brown versus Board of Education, Loving versus Virginia, Obergefell, all these cases that led the way for a society that was more inclusive of people of color, people in interracial marriages, and people in same-sex marriages. On the other hand, there are some really obvious cases that did the opposite, right? We've got Korematsu, which was the Supreme Court case that upheld orders evacuating Japanese Americans to internment camps, and of course the Supreme Court's failure to protect the right to access abortion care, there are decisions that have made society less inclusive. I've not come across much discussion that connects a shift toward increased states' rights with more disparate policies related to inclusion across the country. The connection between state authority and inclusion may not be super obvious, but I think that there is a connection there. One sense of what political rights and freedoms make for an inclusive world is not unrelated to their political persuasions. So if you identify as a Democrat, for example, I can probably safely assume that you define inclusion as being reflected in policies that align with the political left, rights for trans youth to access needed health care, same-sex marriage, reforms that address the over-policing of Black and brown bodies, etc. Blue states tend to adopt laws that are consistent with the priorities of Democratic voters. And if they do so, then those states may have more inclusive policies than what you find in red or in purple states. So as the Supreme Court makes decisions that give states more power and authority to set their own policies, I suspect that that will lead to starker distinctions between states with more and less inclusive policies. For example, in the lead up to and in the aftermath of the Dobbs decision, you may have seen those maps that detailed which states had continued access to abortion and which states either had rescinded or were projected to rescind rights to access abortion. So in a way, a Supreme Court decision led to increased real, visible distinctions between states that are more inclusive or less inclusive of persons who can become pregnant. I tell my students all the time, inclusion is a choice. And that our community will be as inclusive as the aggregate of our choices dictates. If you scale that principle out to a national level, our country will be as inclusive as the aggregate of our policy choices. And I just think that with increased power from the courts to make policy decisions at the state level, some states will choose policies that affirm the humanity of all of their constituents and some states, unfortunately, will not. One thing that I don't know
0: how to deal with, but I think about it often, is that as states get more and more, as there's a greater demarcation line between states and between certain policies and between Democrats and Republicans, one of the things that I find Difficult and challenging is the binary positioning of the sides. And I think that is its own form of exclusion. And so I don't know how we navigate, like, okay, great, we want these inclusive policies, but then also, how do we have discussions across the aisle in ways that bring about greater inclusion or continued inclusion of some individuals who their perspectives may be exclusionary on certain fronts and also they might have valuable thoughts and positioning that might lead to a richness of discussion and decision-making and consensus building. So I don't know how to deal with that and how to not respond to exclusionary behavior by then excluding people in return. So I don't know if that's so much a question as an observation or just something I think about a lot.
3: But it comes up for our students all the time, right? So how do we maintain inclusive learning environments, particularly as students are studying the law, when what it might feel like as a matter of your own identity, as somebody who identifies with a political position, to not see the introduction of challenging ideas as an affront to who you understand yourself to be as a person who believes something different. And so I think that it gets back to that critical self-reflection piece of saying, okay, even though I identify with a particular set of political beliefs, I'm not really at stake When someone presents a different idea, it's an idea that I disagree with, but it's not an idea that attacks me as a person. And it can be really challenging to make that distinction because we're so passionate about our beliefs and increasingly we identify as political people. It's not just red or blue states, but I am a Democrat or I see myself as part of my political persuasion. And I think in the learning context, particularly where we do value free speech and free expression, and we do want to have a robust exchange of ideas, it's really important, I think, to cue people who are in dialogue with one another to remember that our identities and our positions, there's a little bit of space in between there. And if we can hold that space we can actually engage with ideas without feeling like we need to attack each other or like we're being attacked by the introduction of a, of a challenging viewpoint.
0: Well, and I have a question. I'm thinking about how in debate club and all those things, right, they often have you argue a position that you don't necessarily believe in. And I know that there are some people who are practicing law who will do that. If a client comes to them and there are some people who draw a line in the sand and say, absolutely not. I'm not arguing for something that I don't believe in. And what's your position on that? And how do you work with students to meet those challenges of when they may need to take a stand that does conflict with something that they hold to be sacred?
3: Yeah, I mean, in the learning environment, it's so important to make sure that students understand that it's a discipline of practice, that actually you are better at arguing for what you believe when you've gone through the discipline of trying to argue the opposite. And so sometimes it's really top down where it's an assignment and it's, no, you you have to argue the other side. But the goal is to expose students through that temporary discomfort of the exercise to the benefits of, I can argue my position better if I learn how to argue the opposite. And so another little quote that I will give my students is this idea of iron sharpening iron. You actually want your colleagues to bring their A game to class and to debates because you're not going to get better at arguing your position unless you're really challenged by those tough arguments. So, again, this is an opportunity to not see your student or your colleague who has a different position as antagonizing you they're presenting you with an opportunity to refine your argument for why you believe what you believe. So you both get stronger when you both come prepared with the best arguments for your position. And so it's just about recasting what conflict is or what challenging conversation is in the learning environment. This is the place that we're all trying to get better and stronger at our skills. So law students tend to be the kind of people who were probably argumentative in some other place of their life. Somebody probably said, you really like to argue, you should go to law school. And I say that and sometimes the students will chuckle. So then I said, okay, so this is your opportunity to refine your skills as part of developing your craft as a lawyer. And so disagreement is part of the value that you get from legal education when we both are really committed to bringing our ideas in a way that is respectful, right? We could, I tell my students we can disagree about anything except for each other's humanity. So let's not attack the speaker. Let's attack the ideas because when that happens in the classroom, then everybody gets better. Everybody grows.
0: I'm going to take a little pivot here. You mentioned A-game and you talked about skills and growth. And we have a question from Kevin that's related to the sports arena. So I'd love to see what your response is to that.
1: Hi, this is Kevin from California. And I had a question about Title IX. It's paved the way for uh, women's sports and college athletics. How can greater inclusivity be achieved within college sports? when athletes are now able to make money off their own name, image, and likeness?
3: Kevin from California, thank you so much for that question. I'm not a Title IX expert, so I'm not in a position to weigh in super intelligently on this. For listeners who might not know, Title IX prohibits sex discrimination, and that includes pregnancy, sexual orientation, and gender identity in any education program or activity that receives federal financial assistance. So this question about sport and inclusivity in sport, implicit in that, I think, is this idea of, well, how do we make sport more inclusive for people across the gender spectrum? I will say that during the summer of 2022 the US Department of Education proposed amendments to the Title 9 regulations and the amended regulations, if they're adopted, would clarify that Title IX's prohibition on discrimination based on sex does apply to discrimination based on sexual orientation and gender identity. So they would essentially make it more clear that preventing someone from participating in a school program and any activities consistent with their gender identity would with some exceptions, violate Title IX, except in some some limited areas that are set out in the statute or in regulations. According to the Department of Education website, they also plan to issue a separate set of proposed rules to address whether and how Title IX should be amended to address student eligibility to participate on either a male or female athletics team. But in short, to answer your question, Kevin, I think that strengthening civil rights protection is the most important and best way to increase inclusivity in sports for collegiate and school-aged athletes.
0: And I just want to mention for season two of the Demystifying Diversity podcast, we went in depth into an exploration of diversity in sports and some of the barriers that were faced along gender lines. And we talked a little bit about representation and the disparity in financial resources and did some work around images and likenesses. So we will put links to those two main episodes. And then also there's a Q and a episode that goes in depth for that. So for Kevin and anyone else looking to, to specifically focus on the sports arena, I think, we do some justice to that exploration across sports disciplines and gender identities, et cetera. So we will absolutely make sure to link this episode to those episodes in the show notes. And Tamar, thank you so much for that answer. So I'd love to move to the next question, which is about the legal system fighting inequity. And I know we spoke a little bit about this in the episode, but I think it would be good to go more into that exploration discusses in detail the ways in which the legal system can either promote or eliminate social disparities. But can you provide other
3: examples beyond Lily Ledbetter that show how the legal system has helped to fight inequity? For those listeners who may not be familiar, the caller brings up the Lily Ledbetter Fair Pay Act. The Fair Pay Act of 2009 amends the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Discrimination in Employment Act of 1967. So in short, the Fair Pay Act outlaws discriminatory compensation practices, and it creates an avenue for redress if someone experiences loss due to such practices. It's a really important federal protection. And so the caller is bringing up the Fair Pay Act while asking about how the legal system fights inequity, I wanna start off by making clear the difference between equity and equality. Equality is treating everyone the same, regardless of their background, their context, or how they come to the moment of problem solving. Equity seeks a range of treatment that's responsive to an individual's background, context, and how they show up to the moment of problem solving. Equity can look like treating people differently while equality seeks to treat everyone the same. Yet, equitable interventions are often necessary to address social injustices that are marked by disparity. An example, your listeners might have seen the meme online that describes equity as giving each person the number of boxes that they need to see over the fence to watch the baseball game or the soccer game, even if that means that not everyone gets a box. If you're tall enough to see without one, you don't get one, but also you don't need one. So equity attempts to provide a holistic response that takes the problem-solving context into account. Shorter people aren't getting more boxes than everyone else to reinforce some social hierarchy that privileges short people, right? The shorter people are getting more boxes because the context involves a barrier that impacts shorter people more than taller people. So applied in this way, equity gets us closer to justice than equality the outcome that is just is relative to the elimination of the barrier. This is why equity can feel unjust to those who think that justice is only relative to the distribution of resources.
0: I just want to pause there because I think that is so important, what you just shared. And yeah, it ties into what you were talking about earlier, Tamar, with storytelling, right? If the story is everybody should get the same thing. Everybody should get nothing or all the things or what have you. Like, If that's the story, then it does feel incredibly unfair if person A is getting two boxes and I'm getting none, but I'm not really looking at the holistic picture. And well, why are they getting those boxes to stand on? It's so that they can see over the fence. And so I think to your point, it is incredibly important to take a more holistic view of what justice is and what justice aims to accomplish if we want to be invested in equity, because otherwise, I do think equity seems highly unfair to those who don't receive a distribution.
3: And I'm so glad that you brought us back to that idea of the story that we tell, because there's a story that Americans love to tell about deserving, who is deserving of a particular benefit, who deserves, for example, free access to healthcare in this country, who deserves access to food stamps or supplemental nutrition benefits, right? There are all these stories that we tell based on this idea that there are some people who deserve the support of our government and intervention and people who do not deserve. And I think that that is a story that we have to continue to be really critical of because it's denying people that the result of that is that we're not getting the boxes, be that food or medical care, to people who actually have no other way of of achieving those but for the support of our government. And because we tell a story that certain people aren't deserving, we continue to see health outcome disparities, particularly on racial minds. And so I think that the self-critical pieces is my story of deservedness linked to my ideas about which particular political identities are more valuable than not. Because there's a parallel between those, those two factors, I think the second part of the caller's question is whether law in America is actually meant to seek equity or equality. The 14th Amendment to our Constitution provides for the equal protection of law, not the equitable protection of law. The goal of our Constitution is to treat everyone the same. And there are different standards of review for laws that seek to treat people differently on the basis of race, national origin, or sex. On the one hand, these standards of review were meant to prevent laws that discriminate on these bases. But these standards of review do not address efforts to remove the barriers that race and gender have historically and continue to pose on political and economic participation. So an ongoing question in equal protection litigation is the degree to which the government can take race or gender into account when trying to address the effects of past discrimination. So just this term, The Supreme Court heard oral arguments in a challenge brought by an organization called Students for Fair Admissions against Harvard and the University of California. And the question raised is whether affirmative action programs where race is among the factors considered in college admissions decisions violates the 14th Amendment's equal protection guarantee. A ruling that race may not be considered as part of one's college admission decision would further hamper efforts to institutionalize equity wherever racism creates disparity. So when your caller asks, how does the legal system help to fight inequity? Insofar as the legal system allows us to bring challenges that force our courts and our lawmakers to revisit the way that we've always done things, it could ostensibly help to fight inequity. Bloom, the leader of Students for Fair Admissions, has brought multiple challenges to affirmative action and in an effort to realize his notion of justice. So if he can keep petitioning the courts to say affirmative action violates the 14th Amendment, those of us who feel that equity should be ensconced in our Constitution could continue to be part of the political struggle to get courts to to interpret this thing differently, right? Right. Our legal system is not going to evolve in the direction of equity unless we continually press to move it in that direction. We've got to elect representatives who want a system that produces equity. We've got to elect them so that they can appoint justices that will interpret our laws in ways that allow us to realize equity. So it's possible. It's not intuitive, but the option is there. Thank you
0: so much for that question and also for that answer. And I think about when you talk about the interpretation of precedent, and I know our next question is about precedent because I think that is so important. We can take the same text and how that is read, how that is reviewed, how that is implemented really changes outcomes for a lot of people and has tangible ramifications in their lives. I had a question. One of the guests, on this episode mentioned the inherent bias that is created when a court chooses a narrow or a broad view of a legal precedent. How are these choices made? And how do they impact marginalized groups?
3: I think that this question is really a great one, because for those who don't study law, it might feel like law is a pretty black and white thing, right, that law is fixed but when we're talking about case law, you've gotta keep in mind that judges issue opinions. They are offering something subjective. They're exercising their discretion. Our subjective decision-making and our use of discretion creates opportunity for our biases to come through. How precedent gets construed goes back to my earlier response about narrative and consequences. If a judge feels that an earlier decision was wrongly decided, that judge might be less inclined to apply that situation to another set of facts. They might try to limit the reach or the consequences of that earlier decision by saying something like, well, that decision stands because the facts were A, B, and C. And so the judge might try to distinguish that situation from the situation that's in front of them in the present and argue that because the situations are so different, the old rule shouldn't be applied to the present situation. But the same thing could happen in reverse. If the judge really liked the older rule and thinks that it should be the rule in more situations, they might apply it more broadly, even to circumstances where the facts are different from those in the underlying case. Whether the way that precedent is construed impacts marginalized groups really depends on what the rule was. Judicial discretion can be a tool of oppression, but it can also be a tool for incremental progress towards justice. So we don't wanna demonize judges' discretion, but it's tricky, right? It's part of that balance that we have in our society. We don't wanna eliminate discretion and be stuck with a set of policies that we don't like, but because we allow for a breadth of discretion, which can help us change the political winds right or left, that's part of the the risk and the excitement of our, our system.
0: What's something people can do to improve their relationship with their legal rights and protections and to be more empowered, whether that's personally or on a professional level?
3: You've got to know your rights to have a relationship with your rights. Get to know what the law is in your jurisdiction. There's ways that you can do this that aren't as nerdy as going out and getting a law degree, right? You can just read books or articles that interest you about the law in areas that you really care about. There are several good podcasts that focus on the Supreme Court and the legal system, which are both educational and entertaining. The more you know about the law and legal processes, the more empowered you'll feel and the better your relationship with our system of laws you'll have.
0: Something that came up for me in the course of doing these interviews and made it onto the episode was when you were talking about the system of laws, that there are different ways to see the legal system. And Arthur Garrison spoke about how he sees the law as operating from either the guardian model or the warrior model. And I'm just so curious, is that a framework that you use and how do you see the law and navigating that balance between protecting social good and retribution and punishment and like how you have made peace with that contradiction.
3: Yeah. I don't know if they're contradictory. I, I definitely see more of the guardian in my own political philosophy. I do think that government should serve and protect its people There are some instances where protection can be affected by having perhaps more of a warrior approach. But when you layer over that the reality of social racism and political oppression of different demographic groups in this country, that warrior model has been disproportionately applied to people of color. That warrior model has been disproportionately applied to members of the LGBTQ community, right? So it's convenient, I think, to be punitive when what you're also, when the sort of second master that you're serving is the continued subjugation of a group or the perpetuation of a hierarchy that privileges your status, Maybe you're a warrior on paper, but what is your real interest? What are you actually trying to affect through approaching policy that way? I think that as guardians, we have a responsibility to use the law to liberate people from oppression. And I know the the Audre Lorde quote is that the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house, but until we have different tools, we need to use what's at our disposal to affect liberation. So I see more of the guardian model in myself. And I hope that my students see that the use of the law can do both and being really strategic and thoughtful about when you're wielding the law to be protective and what are your underlying motivations if you feel the need to use the law as more of a hammer.
0: Early on in our conversation, you were talking about the article that you put out about racism and public health and those intersections. Can you just share with people how to get that article, what it's called? And we'll make sure to post a a link in the show notes, but I think that would be really of use to our listeners.
3: My essay is called It's Not Irony, It's Interest Convergence: A CRT Perspective on Racism as Public Health Crisis Statements. It is in the Journal of Law, Medicine, and Ethics. If you are not an academic and you want to try to get a copy, go to your local academic library and see if you can access it. And we'll put a link to that article below. Just
0: one last question, Tamar. At the beginning, I asked why you do this work. Why should others? whatever their identities or experiences, be invested in bringing more DEI competency into the area of law and the areas of health.
3: I just think that more people should be invested in DEI work because the richness and the diversity of our perspectives and experiences, when brought together, when we're we're in diverse groups, We're better problem solvers. We're able to see situations from a multiplicity of perspectives. And that means that we're going to be able to come up with better solutions for the problems that plague our society. We're going to be able to come up with more sustainable solutions that impact our society. And we get the benefits of diversity when our cultures are inclusive. And so making space for others is not losing space for you. In fact, when we all have space, we all benefit from one another. And one way that we can ensure that our institutions perpetually produce cultures of inclusion is by setting our systems up with an equity framework rather than an equality framework. So all of those pieces, the D, E, and I, they're connected to one another, they reinforce one another, and they make us stronger. They make us better at being able to solve legal problems, at being able to ensure that everyone has an equal fair and just opportunity to be healthy. Thank you so, so much. Thank you for your time. Thank you for the thoughtfulness
0: of your responses. And thank you to everyone listening. Thank you. Thank you for this opportunity.
3: Can we move forward differently, to foster greater equity? Even if we don't always understand, fairness we cannot should demand. Let's embrace one another, single colleagues, working mothers, people of all points of view. Can we see each other
0: through? wasn't that great? Tamara is such a wealth of information, and I learned a lot from that. But what stood out to the two of you about what she shared?
2: I already shared the main point, which was just the intention. If something is not written into law, then there's an intention behind why that is. But I also think that there was another quote that Tamara said, and it was, our country will only be as inclusive as the aggregate of our policy choices. So again, going back to policy, that was another one where I was like, mic drop, because as long as our policies do not reflect the real lived experiences of people from a variety of backgrounds, then it is not this inclusive country that I think we often try to present it to be. And I think it has a ton of potential, but the policy change is essential. So yeah, I, I kept going back to just policy policy with Tamar's interview, and and I thought she handled those topics really well. What about you, Zach?
1: Yeah, so to stay on the the policy topic, I like that she gave some identifiers of what success of good policy and policy change are. She mentioned, one, do you notice if there's a transfer of resources to marginalized communities? And then the second one she pointed out was, is there empowerment of members of marginalized communities to address problems? And if the policy in place doesn't hit those two buckets, there is some sort of bias there, and it's not actually just for those communities. So I thought it was good that she gave some some elements that you can gauge against and compare to to judge whether a policy is right for everybody or, or not.
0: Has either the interview with Tomar or listening to the main episode influenced your perspectives at all of the legal system?
1: It made me angrier. It's interesting because it's one of those things where it exists, you know, there's a problem that desire to change intensifies when you actually listen to something like this and, and hear more stories. So it was one of those things where it's like, there's a lot of work to be done. It started getting my gears turning as to how I can help. I'm always the guy who, you know, after I vote, I have my little vote sticker on and yeah, I voted, but I've never been the one that's going out and really encouraged folks that I know who might not be voting to go vote. One of the, the the elements of this podcast spurred me to like, we we can't really have that change unless the right people are in position who are making these policies. So it's super important that we get the right folks in there. Now, like I I intend to actually pay more attention next time there's candidates up for various positions in the the area I live when before I might've judged based on, all right, they're a Democrat or, all right, I, I like the, what I've heard in a commercial or something quick that I saw. I'm more interested in taking those deeper dives now and encouraging others to do the same. And that was definitely something that kind of impacted me from, from this episode.
0: I felt like I was I don't know if angrier is the word for how I felt, but I felt a sense of like the overwhelm of how broken the system is. Mm. And I guess I also felt I both really want to be involved in changing it and also like my own relative smallness, which is not a way that I want to feel. I want to feel like I can help and be involved and be engaged. But it It did make me reflect really, really deeply, and it made me reflect on just how hard some people have it from the beginning and how unfair it is. And my hope is, is that listeners listening to this episode who perhaps possess a certain amount of privilege will be willing to leverage that privilege on behalf of others and and do something, get involved in some way. I know that it can be very overwhelming, but whether it's getting more people to vote or writing one senator or, or voting with your dollars, right? Like not supporting organizations that have legal policies in place that are discriminatory. I mean, I think that there's just a lot that we can do to make a difference. And so that's my hope. My hope is, is that people listening to this, we can't change the world, but maybe just focusing on one element or one action that can be significant. And when doing that and leveraging our our power and our privilege and our influence on behalf of those who do not have those same privileges. And, and to your point, Azaria, leveraging that influence, not to then speak on behalf of people who are marginalized, or not to take agency from those people away again, but to make sure that they do have seats at the table and their voices are being heard. But yeah, did either of you emerge hoping listeners would do anything differently? And if so, what what's your hope for them?
2: I know we have been talking a lot about the criminal justice side of things, but we also spent a portion of this episode and previous episodes talking about privacy laws for companies that people work for. And that for me, because I'm hoping that I do that differently, is moving forward when future career opportunities arise and I have options to work with different companies on the table. I never thought that I had the agency to ask those types of questions around how is my information being shared, but it seems more and more prevalent now for people to go in to interviews or discussions with their organizations about how their privacy could be breached and how it's legally okay for companies to do that. And I don't think a lot of us knew that we Do have the right to ask those questions, but I do think that is something and an important concept to factor in when choosing a company that you're going to work for, and even if it's a company that you are currently working for, as those privacy policies probably change over time. Just making sure you're up to date on what the newest policies are, because again, these companies have legal backing to access certain areas of your your information. And if that's something that you're not comfortable with, you should know that. So I think I just would encourage listeners to understand their current company's policies. And also when making decisions to join new companies, making sure you understand where those companies stand with accessing your private information, sharing your private information, all of the above. And I know I will certainly start to do that as well.
1: Super good point. I'll make a short and sweet and just reiterate that whole element of understanding who your elected officials are and and what they're fighting for. I encourage listeners to focus a little more attention towards that and actually go out and vote. And I would also add that educational piece again for either your own organization or if you can lobby on behalf of your local police department and, and folks that are making decisions is that bias training should be part of their regular regimen, whether they're having yearly trainings or, or even more frequent. I think that's something that we can encourage those who are in a position to affect the criminal legal system. They should have some sort of training on a recurring basis. And if they already do, let's do more of it. Hey, listeners, Zach James here partner and marketing manager of the Demystifying Diversity Podcast, and I wanted to share with you some of the great things we're doing in the DEI space. Since the beginning of 2020, myself, Darylis, and our DEI team have facilitated numerous corporate trainings, engaging workshops, one-on-one coaching sessions, and so much more, both virtual and in person. To find out how you can work with us, whether you are an individual or representing an organization, school, corporation, or any other type of group seeking diversity, equity, and inclusion education, head over to DemystifyingDiversityPodcast.com backslash DEI services to send us a message or to fill out our DEI survey. Darylis is a DEI subject matter expert, having interviewed over 300 people, becoming a TEDx speaker, as well as the author of Demystifying Diversity, Embracing Our Shared Humanity. Together, we can help you up-level your DEI skills to improve your productivity, profitability, and interpersonal relationships. So connect with us at demystifyingdiversitypodcast.com backslash DEI services and get yourself a copy of Darylise's book, Demystifying Diversity, Embracing Our Shared Humanity. And don't forget the workbook too.
0: Happy learning. I was thinking about how in this episode we spoke about fairness and justice and the different models of viewing law. And how do the two of you view the legal system in American society, like the role that it has or, or the role that it should have?
1: I view it as flawed. One of the big things that I'm now privy to, thanks to the, that podcast I mentioned earlier, is cash bail and, and how that affects families specifically black and brown families the most. If someone goes and and commits robbery, let's say they they steal some clothes from a store and they get caught, that judge can have them sitting in jail waiting for a hearing and put them at $5,000 bond. Well, I mean, they don't have $5,000. Their family probably doesn't have that. And if they're waiting in jail for two or three weeks for their trial, they might lose their job or they might lose their kid or other things that can really impact their family and their well-being. And again, the judge is is choosing who they're going to keep in there or not and what that amount should be, which often bias plays a big role in that as well. So I just think there needs to be a lot of change and adjustment in the system. I'm not a fan of how it operates currently, and and I'm now just increasing my education to see how I can make any sort of impact, even if it's just locally in my community, towards fixing some of the issues that, that we currently have.
2: That's a great point, Zach. I would say that I view the role of the legal system as a very lucrative business that fully takes advantage of the fact that majority of United States citizens do not know their rights. And that can be in terms of criminal justice issues, that can be in terms of privacy laws with the organization that you're working with it is an industry that feels like it profits off the fact that it knows we're not being taught this stuff in school. We're not being taught to ask these questions. And as Zach just pointed out, he's been having to educate himself, which yes, we should all be educating ourselves, but we should also not have to search so hard to find those answers. And the legal system is incredibly complicated because to your point, federal versus state is different. There's not one Website that you can go to to find every single thing that you need to know about your legal rights as a citizen of the United States of America. And I think that that is problematic beyond belief because, especially knowing our education system is not teaching kids this, I did not learn about these problems in the criminal justice system, my rights as a citizen. There wasn't a class that sat me down and said, hey, when you go into life, these are the things you need to be prepared for and in continuing education it just it feels like those resources are not made available and then for instance we talk about going back to the criminal justice system we talk about people having public defense attorneys right like my dad had that and i just talked to him about the fact that when he could have taken a plea deal he was being just egged on by people that he knew saying, no, you should fight for this. You should fight for this. Well, little did he know like he should have taken that plea deal because he took a massive sentence based off of something where if he would have had an attorney committed to his case telling him like, no, take the plea deal. There's value in it. You're going to serve less time. He would have done that, but he just didn't know that because he was working with a public defender who probably had 20 other cases in the next hour to work on. So We have to, as individuals, I think, have to defend ourselves in a way. And the legal system makes it very hard to find the knowledge and education to do that because it feels like it's all hidden under these encrypted codes, in a sense. The legal jargon, the different laws, and all of the above can be really overwhelming for someone who is not privy to legal policies and procedures.
0: Oh, for sure. I mean, I think those are such important points. Legalese and legal jargon is incomprehensible. It's like reading a different language. And I think that for most people, that is so inaccessible, which is why individuals who can afford to hire attorneys who are very talented and at the top of their careers tend to get off a lot easier or with less penalties. And same thing from civil lawsuits. Some people have been very, very successful in advocating for their rights in a civil legal context, and other people don't even have access to the resources to be able to to do that, right? And so their harms just go unacknowledged. And then also the point that you made about your dad getting more time because he didn't take a plea deal. I mean, I've read a lot and watched a lot of just different commentary on the fact that our legal system incentivizes people to not go to trial. And yet in this country, we're promised the right to a fair trial by a jury of our peers. And so that in and of itself is so unfair. You know, the sentencing should not be markedly higher for individuals who want their day in court because that right. that is their legal right. Yeah, just a lot that is broken with the system. And we could talk about this for several hours and still not be done. But we'd love to hear if you're listening to this, we'd love to hear your thoughts and your questions. So please write us or call us. And FYI, for those who do write in and call in, we're going to be giving out a free copy of the book, Demystifying Diversity, Embracing Our Shared Humanity during every Q&A episode. So Azaria, do you want to announce the winner for this episode?
2: I'd love to. The winner for this episode is Ray Warner, a newsletter subscriber and also a call in listener.
0: Awesome. Congrats, (laughs) Ray.
1: Thank you so much to everyone who subscribed to the newsletter and calls and writes us with questions. And make sure you follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. We'll look to answer some of your questions there too. And of course, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for listening in more than 50 countries.
2: And if you want to contact today's expert, Tamar Pearson Brown, we'll put that info in the show notes.
1: And while you're checking out our show notes, be sure to click the link for com to subscribe to our newsletter and learn about our DEI trainings, workshops, coaching, consulting, and other DEI services.
0: Yeah, be sure to sign up for all of that. The newsletter is great. We're doing so much more on social this season. So connect with us, connect with Sedwick, get involved, get engaged, get your employer engaged. Or if you are an employer, hopefully this episode and the others this season will support you in creating a more inclusive workplace culture.
1: Every episode of the Demystifying Diversity podcast is written, reported, and produced by Darylis Lyons.
0: With the invaluable assistance of co-collaborator and marketing manager, Zach James, with Azaria Keys, assistant director of Sedwick, co-producer and coordination consultant, our assistant producer and editor, Paul Kondo, our production and development assistant, Stuart Krantz, and content editor and creative collaborator, Sunny Taylor.
2: The music you heard is Demystifying Diversity, an original composition, the lyrics of which were written by Darylise Lyons in collaboration with Raymond Beeftink, tink who also created all the music and performed vocals and instrumentals.
0: Thank you again to Tomar Pearson-Brown for being the expert voice in this episode. Thank you to those listening and to you, Zach and his area. This was a really great conversation. Please join us next week when we'll be talking about DEIAB, an $8 billion industry.
2: And in the meantime, let's keep trying to make this a better, more inclusive world.